You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast produced by Veteran Strategies and featuring conversations with fascinating and impactful men and women who have shaped our world, our communities, and our history. My name is Robert Vane, Principal of Veteran Strategies, and your host for our discussion. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, an Indiana-based public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmon Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and NFP, a national insurance broker with strong local content. Our podcast is featured on the All Indiana Podcast Network in partnership with Wish TV. You may find Leaders and Legends at allindianapodcastnetwork.com. Thinking of starting a podcast or need to host a public meeting? Let Leaders and Legends LLC be your partner as you look for new ways to communicate your message. Please contact Chris Spangle or me at leadersandlegends.net. And as always, all our podcast interviews are dedicated to the legacy and generosity of P.E. McAllister. Howie Politics and State Affairs Pro offer insider election coverage, polling, and analysis in Indiana. Our nonpartisan news and legislative tools create a winning combination pro subscribers can't live without. For all the resources you need this election season and beyond, visit pro.stateaffairs.com slash IN. That's pro.stateaffairs.com slash IN. Thank you for joining us on the Leaders and Legends podcast. Our guest today is is special in a way that, that most folks, quite frankly, aren't. We were lucky enough to interview a member of his brotherhood a couple of years ago for our podcast, and that's Sammy Davis. But today it's Donald Doc Ballard. He's a retired colonel of the Kansas National Guard and a former member of the United States Navy. But as a hospital corpsman in the Vietnam War, he received the Medal of Honor for his heroic actions on May 16, 1968. He also received three Purple Hearts for his service to his country. Doc Ballard, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Well, good morning and thank you for having me. Well, before we get started in, in, in your story and talk about um, that day and how you're helping veterans, let's quickly transition to that. You are in Indianapolis. Uh, what brings you into town, and why is why is the service to veterans so much a part of your life? Well, it's always been part of my life. I've been a health care provider most of my adult life. I entered the service as a pre-med major in dentistry, and I wanted in, I wanted to make a career out of the military because I wanted to uh, service the military. You know, to be a dentist within, at that point, it was the Navy. I joined the Navy to be a Navy dentist. And so ever since that time, um, throughout my adult life, I've been a caregiver and caretaker. And, and so it's natural for me to, to find uh, <clears throat> respect and want to honor the people that saved my life. You know, a time in combat will change your opinion for the rest of your life. And, um, you know, I'm just a small-town kid that left Kansas City to go get my education and ended up on the battlefield killing people. I had no intention of killing people. I, unfortunately, I had to. Uh, I killed six men. Three of them was with my knife. So, you know, how do you expect me to come home and be the same guy? You know, uh, as you recall, Vietnam vets coming home were not received very well. It was Correct. a poor time in our, our society. And so dealing with that, I, I decided that the only brothers that I truly had were veterans that understood how and why I did what I did. And so it, it just grew out of love and respect that I would want to be around veterans and help them because they were there to help me. Indianapolis, Indiana, 
too. But Indianapolis especially is known for its veterans and its war memorials, how it treats, how it honors veterans. Is Indianapolis been a stop for you uh, previous in your career, in your life? Not really, no. I uh, Many, many years ago, 30 years ago maybe, I was up here at a, at a brick factory uh, taking a tour. Mm. I had an interest in playing in the clay and um, you know, learning how bricks were made. So, But other than that, no, I've never been here before. Is there a specific kind of reason, anything, that the Leaders and Leader and Legends podcast audience can help you do while you're in town? A cause we can support? For sure. I mean, the real purpose is that we're trying to start an initiative to change the pretty much the entire look and feel of the American Legion posts across the country. We're starting here in Indianapolis with Post 500. So many times uh, the younger kids don't want to join an old fogies uh, organization, you know, where it's made up of smoking and drinking and storytelling and just BS. So, you know, we have to look at it from a different perspective and we have to look at what their needs are and try to fulfill their desires Unlike when we came home, they didn't want us to join the Legion or, or the Vietnam uh, veterans to join anything, you know, because we had lost the wars, so to speak. And uh, it was disheartening. So part of that learning curve is that we don't leave anybody behind. Now, they say that's a good buzzword, but they left us out. They left the Vietnam guys behind, didn't want us. So I've made a special effort, being a Vietnam guy, that... You know, we changed the attitude of the country when we um, changed the pendulum and, and the direction of the pendulum uh, with uh, the attitude of the community. You know, when, when a veteran would come home in uniform, um, we would stand up and clap and praise him and give him the honors that he deserves, and the sheeple would follow us. They didn't know why we were clapping or why mm-hmm. we were giving praise, but the sheeple all of a sudden uh, jumped up and started supporting us. So we, one by one, individuals can make a difference in this country if we just put our mind and get uh, mind to it as well as get some good direction and good goals. And so that's what our goal is here today is to help the American Legion recruit membership through education, We'd like to have uh, to expand on the American Legion's education theme now. They already have one. So we're trying to uh, embellish that and expand it throughout the country and give them um, a better presence and a a more acceptable um, uh, attitude towards the newer veterans. Let's go back to something you said just a few seconds ago. A lot of folks are folks who paid attention either because they've read about it or lived through it, kind of understand to a certain degree why veterans, that's not true, how veterans were treated post-Vietnam. And some of that was, was passive, right? They didn't honor them the way that like World War II vets, for example, were honored. But what, what you're describing is almost an active discrimination. So when you came through, come out of Vietnam, a Medal of Honor recipient, and, and all those other brave men, it was actively discouraged for you guys to join the American Legion or the VFW? Yes. Um, and to expand on that, when we got off the plane from Vietnam in California, we were met by protesters. And we had cups of urine thrown on us. We had dog feces thrown at us and, and hit us in our, in our uniforms. And, uh, you know, we, we were disheartened because, you know, we did everything we could, to what we thought was the best interest of the country, only to come home and find out the country wasn't behind us. So pretty disheartening. We were not allowed to wear our uniform off base. Think of that. I mean, how this... this mm. uh, dishonorable as that you know so we had to actually take our uniform off or cover it if we were going to go off base on liberty or something the guards wouldn't let you off in uniform and now when people see americans in uniform at the cracker barrel or someplace they pick up their check 
Yes. I mean, but that was through an effort of, uh, to, uh, to, to the most part, it was to the effort of the Vietnam vets that said, we're not going to let that happen to the new kids. So we took the initiative, as, as I mentioned, uh, one by one, uh, each of us uh, did our part to try to change the attitude of the civilians. It's been my great fortune to know while I was in the Army from 87 to 90, there were plenty of Vietnam vets still in the service at that point, a lot of whom who had gotten out after Vietnam and then rejoined. Uh, but through my work in politics or PR or podcasting, I've met several other Vietnam vets. What, what stands, what makes that era of veterans stand apart? Not better or worse, just different. Well, a lot of it's got to do with our upbringing and uh, our belief system and our toys that we grew up with and the lack of, of distractions that the kids use today to, to check out a reality. We were taught by the Second World War veterans how to take responsibility for our actions, how to uh, become a patriot, how to become uh, a better American citizen. And uh, I'd have to say that as a parent, and as an adult, we failed the new kids. As we literally have not taught them the values that we were taught. They're not as tough as kids as we were. You know, they they won't, they strive to get a star by their name. You know, acceptance mm -hmm. and uh, rather than team playing, it's all about more individuality than than, uh, you know, making the, meeting the goals of, and mission statements. You mentioned why you joined the service and then what you ended up doing while you were in the service. When you, when you got over to Vietnam, kind of what were your thoughts? I mean, Vietnam by that time was, you were in 65, I think, is that when you went there? No, I joined in no, I, I joined the Navy in 1965, and it was 67, the latter part of 67. Um, I'd, I'd already served with the Marines mm -hmm. uh, during 67, so I was indoctrinated into the FMF world, Fleet Marine Force. So the Marines uh, were quick to—the Marines got a good training program, mm -hmm. and if you pay attention, you got a good chance of living. If you don't— in your history. So the fact that I had several months with the Marines before I was sent to Vietnam, I believe that was to my advantage. And uh, even though we didn't go over as a unit, I was augmented over as an individual. Mm -hmm. I knew nobody else on the plane, and the same was true when I came home. But going over there, uh, you know, all the units had already been activated. They were in place. And so now the fillers would come and replace the dead guys. And that's what we were, were fillers. You, you joined to be a dentist eventually to get yes. the training and all that. Correct. You end up becoming a Navy corpsman? Yes. This is the question I've asked other Vietnam vets. At what, at what point, apropos for you, of course, while you were deployed, did the well, Toto, we're not in Kansas anymore. Moment hit you. Well, I'd say the first step is the yellow footprints. You know, when you first get into boot camp and and um, there's nobody there that cares about you, and that you, they their intent is to break you down. You know, to to put every test they can muster together to see if they can break you, and that's that's pretty enduring. And then uh, your first assignment, it's a little easier because now you've got a mission, you got a job, and and you're around friendly or people. You know, mm -hmm. it's not the boot camp attitude any longer. So then uh, the next step would be learning your job to the best of your ability and learning that skill uh, that makes you an asset to the unit. And uh, so you spend the rest of your life. Uh, living up to those values and the skill set and then learning leadership skills so you can, you know, lead instead of follow. 
Vietnam, I can't think of a place, perhaps. I'm sure there are others, maybe Antarctica, that is different than the state in which you grew up. Just being over there and interacting with the people and, you know, the, the one thing about basic training especially is they throw people from all over the country in the same building, same room, same barracks and say, help each other, figure it out. Right. Is that is something you experienced when you were in Vietnam that everyone's like, we all want to get home alive. Let's help each other. The team was was quite obvious in Vietnam. You know, we're None of us, even today, can function as an individual. We, we do so much better when we function as a team member. Uh, Vietnam was a perfect example. It was us against them. Who, who are them? I mean, we don't know. Mm-hmm. And if you talk to 10 different Vietnam guys, veterans, you would come up with 10 different stories, you know, because we all experienced different warfare, different enemies, different terrain features. You know, it's, uh, you know, it's, I've been asked, well, why is your story different than everybody else's? And that's the main reason is uh, none of us saw the exact same thing unless we were in the same unit. Mm. So the camaraderie, the love, the, uh, the need for fellowship and companionship and trust was a big part of, of survival in, in Vietnam. You know, I... When I got there, I didn't care whether the North or South was winning or the uh, the Democrats or Republicans. You know, my entire life and my mission was to get the Marines home as best a condition as I could back to their loved ones. That was my sole job. And if that meant risking my life, then so be it. You are listening to the Leaders and Legends podcast. Our guest today is Doc Ballard. He received the Medal of Honor for his heroic actions in Vietnam in May of 1968. Did you have a strong stomach before you went to Vietnam? What prepared you for the carnage that you saw? I don't think I was prepared. You know, my first day in Vietnam, um, to go to the field, you know, I spent a couple days in the rear when I first got there. But my first day that I was put on a chopper and we were sent out to my assignment, we got shot down. And uh, the senior corpsman that came to get me was wounded in both legs and both arms. So I had to medevac him out. So I went from junior kid on the block to senior man in the outfit. Mm. And we luckily we were on <clears throat> a resupply mission uh, to a Marine Corps base when we got shot down. So when the bird crashed, we were within reach of the Marines. The Marines came and helped us get back into their base camp. And so we sit there until we could get another bird. And people don't understand that birds don't fly every day. You know, weather and a lot of a lot of things, you know, uh, enemy activity. Uh, there's a lot of things that prevent a bird from flying. In that case... You know, I was proud to say, and there's not much I can say good about Vietnam, except I'm, I'm real proud to say that we brought all that medical training home with us. And this, the people here in the citizenry of uh, this state have benefited from the Vietnam War. And you ask how? Well, we learned how to uh, treat casualties, trauma, and how to uh, change our entire attitude. You know, prior to Vietnam, it was scoop and run uh, by the local fire departments. Mm. They had first aid men. And uh, we, were, we were not afforded that ability because we had no ground ambulances. So we had to depend on the helicopter again. Uh, so the whole golden hour was designed. Airway management was designed. Everything to keep the patient alive and the, the term was stabilization before transportation. That's what was created in 1967 and 68 when uh, we had no means of evacuation uh, except for the helicopter. So we brought that home and taught it. I was one of the first EMT paramedics in my state. Uh, the state did not recognize our training uh, by the licensing, but everybody that taught the course knew we knew more than the people teaching the course. <laughs> so, uh, 
So when I first got out of the service, I, I could do a cricoid thyroidotomy, tracheostomy, guillotine amputation, artillery and venous cut down, but I couldn't carry a bedpan without supervision <laughs> in the civilian life. I, I worked orthopedic surgery and neurosurgery, so I was thankful that I had the training because I was able to save more lives in the field than a typical medic or a corpsman was. In 65, was there still the draft? Yes, because I got my draft notice. <laughs> and then you decided to join? No, I got it while I was in Vietnam. I told my sergeant, hey, I got a draft <laughs> notice. I got to go home. <laughs> and he says, uh, here's a straw. Suck it up, big guy. <laughs> There's a famous, uh, not, he's, he's famous. He's very respected and successful fellow here in Indianapolis who I'd love for you all to meet at some point. His name is Michael Browning, and he's come on the podcast, very famous businessman, and he graduated from Notre Dame, and he got his, his mother brought his induction notice to the graduation ceremony. Son, I'm proud of you. Here's your induction notice. <laughs> your friends and neighbors have selected you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, when I was... Were, go yeah, ahead, please. That, well, they didn't... The selection service, uh, you know, we all signed up when we were supposed to back then, and... Um, my mo my mother got the notice because I didn't have an address, you know. Prior to that, uh, I did get married and I had two kids uh, while I mm -hmm. was in Vietnam. So, but I never kept my records up, you know. So my mother, through the Selective Service Board, got the notice and she forwarded it over to me. And you know, you might get it a month later, but uh, it was it was humorous to get my draft notice and while I was sitting in Vietnam. Do you know your draft number? No. I I, I've heard from multiple people of your generation that the, the, you never forget. I mean, obviously, you're already over there, so it wasn't yeah. as pertinent. But, like, I could say, what's your draft number to a 70-year-old man? And he'll say, 228? Mine was 239. I just recalled. 239. As you're, as you're growing up, you're in high school. You're going through the 60s. You've witnessed, you know, a, a, a terrific and terrifically tragic era in American history, how much was Vietnam a part of your consciousness or, or worldview before you ever went over there? In other words, did you follow it and like, oh, my God, I'm getting ready to graduate. That's probably where I'm going to go, that sort of thing. Is it something that you were monitoring, tracking? Not at all. And if you would have asked me in 1965 when I joined the service where the military was serving, I didn't know we were in Vietnam. Secondly, I didn't know on the globe where Vietnam was. I couldn't have, couldn't have pointed it out, you know. Uh, I mean, we studied geography, but uh, uh, I must have slept during that course, you know. <laughs> I did not have a clue where Vietnam was, and nor would I care because I had no intention of going there. But little did I know. You are listening to the Leaders and Legends podcast. It's presented by Veteran Strategies, an Indiana-based public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Garmond Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and NFP, a national insurance broker with strong local content. Our guest today is Doc Ballard. He received the Medal of Honor for his heroic actions in Vietnam. So it's May 16th, 1968. I'm going to guess you woke up like any other day. Didn't know that was about to happen. I've read your, and I'm, I brought it there so I could refer to it, your Medal of Honor citation. I also watched the video that you did. Uh, you looked smashing in your mustache, by the way, for the Medal of Honor uh, Society. It's a terrific video. Actually, all the videos on there are, I went down a rabbit hole a couple days ago. I probably spent two hours on the site. It's it's. Incredible. Anyway. Well, um, if you recall, I was much younger, but uh, that was early in my career, and I still had the 2,000-yard stare. Mm -hmm. if, you, if you notice the film, I wasn't there. I mean, <laughs> I was talking, but my eyes were way out there. I was, I was trying to recall the events without thinking about it. I was answering the question without reliving it, mm. if that makes sense. And I've had to live with that ever since because everybody that comes across my path wants to know, well, how'd you get the medal? 
Oh, I got it at Walmart. <laughs> you have to. You can't even get. Like I have a meritorious service metal lapel pin, right? So you can order lapel pins online and stuff like that. But for Medal of Honor recipients, you have to have a card. Like you can't just order a lapel pin or a medal. Well, since the Stolen Valor Act, uh, you're not allowed to manufacture or transport, own, possess the Medal of Honor if you don't have proof that you're a recipient. Couldn't You can't sell it. They confiscated um, all of them that we had at the time— um, when I joined, there was 429, if I'm not mistaken, living recipients, but there was over 600 imposters. Oh. So everybody wanted the to be the Medal of Honor recipient, but they didn't want to serve to get it, you know. So the stolen valor was uh, something that we uh, emphatically wanted to uh, squash. And uh, a lot of our guys signed on to do what we could to put an end to the the uh, stolen valor, you know, because um, we earned it. Not in just the medal, any medal. I'm talking about even the Purple Heart, because even the VA came out and said that they were getting a bunch of phonies applying for benefits. Really? Sure. They had to vet them. And that's a big part of, you know, how do you bet? That's why it was so hard for Vietnam guys to qualify for benefits because they had to bet themselves to the nth degree, uh, not only of the service connection, but the, the incident that, that they're mm-hmm. claiming happened, you know, the injuries. I read a, a book recently about the Manhattan Project and the atomic bomb. And one of the points made by the author is that the United States is still, to this very day, using the Purple Hearts that were minted in anticipation of the invasion of Japan. That's how many casualties they expected. When in 19, I'm going to say in 2000, not 19, but 2008, I became a funeral director. And I learned at that time we were still using the military caskets that were prepared for Japan. Oh. May 16th, 1968. I'm not going to ask you any questions. I'm just going to say if you could take us back to the extent that you want to, to that day, in as little detail as you want, uh, that was the day you acted so heroically. I, I can't imagine doing what you did. I can't imagine it either. Um, if I think back on that day... Uh, it was my daughter's birthday, May 16th. And I woke up with the idea that, you know, I wish I could tell her happy birthday. So I had that in my mind. And, and uh, you know, we started right out with a gunfight. And, and we ended in, you know, we had to move out and went to from point A to point Z with all the checkpoints in between the alphabet. And uh, the whole battalion went online. And uh, I was able to um, fit in the middle of it because I was a corpsman. The, the Marines, you have to understand that Marines love their docs. <laughs> and they called us doc because they couldn't spell corpsman. <laughs> I like that. Yeah. Well, both, my, both my parents were in the Marine Corps. They're, right. both, they're both dead now, but if they were alive, I would certainly repeat that. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, if there's any listeners out there that are Marines, if I tell a joke, I'll tell it slow and twice. <laughs> I can pick on the Marines because I damn well can. You know, the, <laughs> I earned that right. Uh, the Marines and their corpsmen is, has no greater love um, than, than uh, their combat buddies. And... You know, I uh, obviously was willing to risk my life for the Marines, and they protected me likewise. Um, No greater love. So to to finish the story, or at least continue until I get interrupted again, would be to uh, uh, understand that we were on a battalion move, and and we were going from different positions, and uh, we had uh, uh, some new troops that had just joined us uh, two days before, and the morning, uh, two, one day before, uh, three different people, and two of them fell out from heat exhaustion. You know, just they hadn't got acclimated to the to the environment over there, so they they were a burden, and we needed to get them back to the rear where they could get treatment. 
So I, uh, we set up a hasty uh, LZ, and there was uh, six Marines and myself and the two patients. And we, we called in the helicopter, medevaced them out, and then we looked around, and the unit had already moved out. We're standing there with seven of us uh, in enemy territory with no defense. So that made us uh, pucker a little bit, and so we thought we better get the heck out of the area. So we tried to find where the <laughs> where the unit moved out to. So we we followed the trail the best we could, and then we finally caught up with the end unit. You know, the the the, the last unit of the of the uh, of the march. So we, as they would stop and take a break, then we would continue walking through that unit to get up to our unit. You know, that company. So we never did. I never got to my unit that day, you know, because they were attacked. They uh, um, were ambushed and had several casualties. And the people that I treated were not even in my unit. They were just Marines. And, of course, that's my unit, you know, being mm -hmm. with the Marines. So I was actually treating Marines that I didn't know. And... Uh, the only people I knew in that whole outfit were the uh, litter bearers and the radio operator that helped me medevac the heat casualties. So it took me a You know, my job was simple. You know, go out and get the Marine. It didn't care what his name tag was. He, you know, he was an American uh, wounded, and the corpsman was uh, summonsed as Doc or Corpsman Up, mm -hmm. the Marine Corps battle cry. And so that's what I did. And I'd went out several times. Now, we had moved out, and we'd set up uh, uh, overnight. I joined the unit. We set up overnight and in a, in a hasty defense posture. And um, that morning, we woke up to gunfire, and uh, they had, they had uh, attacked us. And when they uh, saw the, an area that they could penetrate our line, they pushed through the line and— and uh, just overrun us. So I'd, my particular remembrance of that day was the, the machine gunner that was in front of me got wounded, and so I grabbed my aid bag, and I ran down to treat him, and I jumped in the, the machine gun hole, you know, the uh, uh, pit, and uh, was was working on the guy when the second machine gunner who— was also shot uh, while I was there, and he got shot in the forehead, you know, small hole going in and a large hole coming out. Mm. And so it, it blew him back over on me. And uh, the uh, this is tough for me because— You stop whenever you need to stop, sir. I'm, I'm going to do the best I can. So <clears throat> the— it was maybe five seconds to six, eight seconds. Who knows? might have been four days. I don't know. I lost track of time. But the enemy uh, came over us. They literally walked through us. There were six of them. Five of them uh, were picking up our machine gun and all our ammo and the food and everything. And the sixth person was standing about 2 o'clock uh, at the ready, you know, watching us to make sure we didn't move or cause any kind of problems. Well, when everybody moved out, that SOB shot all three of us again. So I laid there playing dead and had to watch him shoot me. He shot me in the, in the stomach. Luckily, didn't shoot me in the head. Mm. Uh, and I, I, I must have reacted in such a way as it made him think I was dead. So he walked away. I was able to push the dead person off of me because his brains was all over me. When he fell back, his brains came out of the helmet, which landed all over my face, so it made me look like I was injured pretty good. Imagine I couldn't couldn't see myself. But So I pushed him off, and the only thing I had on me was my knife, and it was in my boot. So I knew I had to get behind uh, where the enemy had gone because now they're shooting our people from a different position. So I get up there, and uh, the man that shot me was uh, going through my food. And now he didn't see me or hear me coming because of all the gunshot and all the activities and everything. So I jumped on him, knocked him flat on, his, on, the, on the ground, and I slit his throat. 
I laid there on top of him until he could bleed out. So that's how my day started. <clears throat> we were able to pull out and uh, and uh, you know regain help. The, the Marines were able to kill all the people that had entered our compound. So we had gathered up the um, the bodies and and the living and and my job at that point became to go out and get the, uh, uh, to treat the wounded. Um, this was early on. We weren't picking up bodies at that time. We were still in, engaged in battle. So my job was to go out and get the, uh, and treat the uh, living. And that's what I did. And I would fire and carry the person uh, back to a clearing station. It was a bomb crater is what I had identified as a, a safe place. So I went out, got the guy, brought him back in, and I laid, took him off of my shoulders, and I laid him on the ground. And when I laid him on the ground, I laid him on top of a, a grenade. It went off, blew both of his legs off. And now I've got another patient. And it, it also tore the face off of the guy laying behind us. So now I had another patient. So, so my immediate position was, uh, you know, I saved these two guys. I already saved them once, and now i got to save them again, treat them again. And so I did. Uh, I was able to put tourniquets on the, the guy that lost both legs, and I was able to uh, treat the, uh, the facial wound. And I went back to treating the guy with no legs. I'd started a, an IV on him to replace his blood volume. And uh, a Marine hollered at me, he kept hollering, doc, doc, doc. I turned around. Um, and I, I saw another grenade. Uh, I skipped something there. I'm, I need to go back and recover. Was uh, I was while I was working before the third grenade came in. I, I handled three grenades, or was involved with three grenades. Mm. I was working on the guy on my knees, working on putting a tourniquet on, when a grenade came in and hit me in the helmet. I was on my knees, and it hit me and fell down by my knees. And I thought, well. Not being a Marine, I didn't stick it in my pocket as a souvenir, you know. <laughs> I wanted to get rid of the damn thing. So I grabbed it uh, like you would anything else that was dangerous, and I flung it out of the bomb crater, and it went off. So that built a, a, a little bit of false bravery, if you will. I mean, nobody picks up a hand grenade, right? But I had no choice, in my opinion. So, again, I'm working on the same guy, and uh, the— the other Marines started hollering, Doc, and I turned around, and there's the third grenade that was just a little bit out of my reach. So I turned to grab it, and, and I realized I couldn't, so I, I got up off my knees, and I lunged for it. And by that time, I knew it was going to blow. And so I pulled it up underneath my chest, thinking something incorrectly. You know, I thought I was going to be able to survive it, or I didn't know what was going to happen, but... You know, I was motivated to try to save those other men that were laying there and my patients, you know. So um, I had epiphany because God talked to me. Jesus Christ called me himself and said, boy, you're not too smart. You better get rid of that thing. <laughs> so I rolled up on the guy without any legs, and I flung it in the air, and it went off in the air. Now, the citation says it, I failed to go off. And I just calmly arose and continued to treat the, the uh, patients. But the truth is known is uh, if Paul Harvey was here, he would mm -hmm. tell you that um, when you holler grenade, everybody buries their head. And so nobody saw the actions that I took. I'm the only one between God and myself. Um, you know, I'm, I'm the one that uh, the only one that could make any kind of difference there. So. For me to have taken action was, uh, my opinion, uh, the right thing to do. And so, um, you know, I, I didn't, I never considered I was commit, trying to commit suicide. Never entered my mind. I had just seen the guy, what the grenade did to the, to the previous person. It just right. blew, blew his legs off. Well, no big deal. I mean, I mean, it's a big deal. But, uh, you know, maybe, you know, he lived through it, and I got him off the hill that day alive. So he was in shock, but he was still breathing and still, and, uh, still alive. So I thought maybe I could survive it too. I didn't have time to really concentrate on my options. 
You know, it was one of those one of those times when you just have to instinctively do something. It's like you don't think about it. And so that's what I did. By jumping on the grenade and then rolling over and throwing it away. I'm blessed that, uh, you know, the good Lord was on my side and, and there to watch after me. And secondly, I claim that, you know, the enemy were using Chinese communist grenades and they got them at the dollar store. <laughs> so that's the only thing I can laugh about today because it's a sad story in my life. And I, I use humor to deal with my PTS. And uh, that's my story and I'm going to stick with it. In its own right, it is a fabulous, although tragic, story. You mentioned about a minute ago that no one saw you, saw these actions. Correct. So then how does the process start for the Medal of Honor, I guess, review, Mm -hmm. awarding? Well, you have to be, uh, the story has to be told, and you have to be put in for an award. I didn't learn any of this until I went to my first reunion with my group. And I'm, if you're listening out there today, thank you, Marines. But I went to my reunion, and I met the battalion commander. And the colonel was telling me the story. And he related a story that um, the, he had, uh, some Marine had written me up, and they were uh, processing that, you know, each, and it's also important to know that each level, it could be chopped. You know, mm-hmm. if, if a sergeant didn't like you, there was a prejudice or maybe a, a misunderstanding between the two of you, he could have said no. Uh, you know, the staff sergeant could have said no. The first sergeant could have said no. The lieutenant, all up the chain of command, any level could have said no. And for that to get that high to the battalion, um, you know, I had no opposition. You know, everybody loved their docs, right? Mm-hmm. So, again, I learned all this, you know, eight, eight, ten years later. And, um, and, the, and the colonel related a story that uh, he had to uh, impress upon the major in the rear with the gear that he, want, you know, he called down there and said, where is that? I haven't seen the uh, story. Did you, did you forward it under my signature block? And the major said, well, is the corpsman alive? Was he dead? And then and the uh, colonel related the story. That he said, no, he, he's right here with me right now. I mean, he's here. He's still alive. And he said, well, uh, did he get wounded? No, no, not to my knowledge. He did not get wounded. And the major said, well, we don't give corpsmen awards, you know, for doing their job. <laughs> and besides, you didn't even get wounded, you know. So uh, now that, this is what the colonel's telling me. And I'm sitting there in awe thinking, what happened? And the colonel said, you know, Major, I'm going to come down there with my number 10 boot and stick it up, you know, where, if you don't <laughs> submit that forward. He says, you get your butt out here and interview the troops. And he says, uh, after the interview, you, you know, report to me. And so it, the, he flew out there unbeknownst to me and met with the, uh, uh, the witnesses who said that, Yes, they saw me jump on the hand grenade, but they didn't see me get off of it. They didn't see me do anything. They mm-hmm. just assumed that they didn't go off because, you know, I got up and started treating the Marines. So Paul Harvey would have explained the difference and explained what I explained was I was able to throw it away, and it did detonate in, in the midair without, without any, causing any injuries. Were you put in for like a Silver Star or a Distinguished Service Cross and it got upgraded, or were you recommended for the Medal of Honor from the beginning? Uh, it was either Silver Star or Navy Cross, and it got upgraded. And again, not knowing what I'm talking about, or then especially, I wasn't even aware that I was put in for it. Um, the colonel related that, um, you know, it was going to— he thought it was going to be a challenge getting it through because I wasn't even wounded because mm-hmm. most Medal of Honor recipients get wounded or killed. The majority of them get killed. And that day I, I had been wounded eight times while I was in Vietnam, but that day I did not receive any injuries at all. So I had several things against my action. You know, the, I was alive. I wasn't even wounded. And I was a corpsman. Mm-hmm. I, I didn't deserve it. Is there a... We have a few minutes left with Doc Ballard, who received the Medal of Honor for his actions in Vietnam. 
May 16, 1968. Fast forward, you're at the White House. You're with Nixon and the other recipients that day, other people being honored. Small town boy, now he's in the White House talking to Richard Nixon. Yes, and, you know, we were raised to be respectful of the White House, no matter who the president was. I enjoyed Nixon. I'd followed him. Uh, and uh, But I hadn't voted yet. Uh, he, he would have been my first president to vote for. And I, I just come out, as a matter of fact, uh, I was still in the service, to come think of it. Uh, I was in between services, and I was getting out of the Navy going into the Army when I was called to the White House. So uh, it was an honor to meet Nixon. I mean, he had a tremendous heritage. He'd done a lot for the for our country. And it was, uh, you know, he's the president of the United States, I'm, and I'm just a kid. You know, E-5, um, you know, talking to four-star generals mm-hmm. and uh, the president of the United States. That was, you know, the that was pretty serious stuff, and it was the highlight of my my career as well as my life. So, you were you received the medal in 1970 at the White House. Was that before or after the Kent State incident? I think it was before. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it was. I'm not I'm not sure about that. Let me ask you the same question. I was fortunate enough to ask uh, Sergeant Davis. Uh, is there I mean, these stories are, if you, if you go on the Medal of Honor website, you just are mesmerized by them. Sit there with your mouth open going, you got to be kidding me. I asked Sammy, is there, is there someone else's medal story? Like what, what person X did to receive the medal that he finds like, oh my God, you know, I did what I did. But what this guy did is just unbelievable. Is there another Medal of Honor recipient whom you, who, admire maybe a little bit more that's a tough question because i admire all of my brothers mm-hmm. you know they i i could find good with every one of them that you know that i first of all didn't believe i should have gotten it you know i was just doing my job you know uh, some of these guys that went out and actually killed the enemy and mm-hmm. saved the saved the lives of so many people you know, uh, there's several people I could name, uh, but I, in fear of, of not naming them all, I'm not going to name any one particular one. But there's, there's, uh, I'm in love with the, the guys that I serve with, and um, you know, I'm, I'm just respectful that I, I had an opportunity to meet them and join their ranks, and and I've spent the rest of my entire life, just like the purpose I'm up here this weekend, uh, or this week actually, as to, to serve the veterans to the best of my ability. I've always said and still believe today it's harder to wear the medal than it was to earn it. And I want to mm. be remembered for what I've done since that day, that one day in combat that's that changed my life forever. So now I have to live up to it. And uh, I've started different organizations. Uh, again, I'm up here to help the Legion because I want to give back. I want to continually pay it forward and pay respect and honor to the veterans. You mentioned something when we were discussing in the first half of the podcast, we have just a few minutes left about Vietnam veterans helping subsequent generations, like lifting that up. And I remember reading an article several years ago, may have been a couple decades ago that recipients like you and others, especially from the Vietnam era were saying that there aren't, enough of these being awarded that a lot of them are being downgraded and know what this guy did he or you know he should get it is is that something that that a you is true b you think is necessary i just thought it was one of the most unselfish things i'd ever read where it's like okay we can keep this click really small or we can help the people behind us get their due recognition Good point, because as a recipient, we have no say in what and who gets the medal. We avoid that uh, not only by reason that you can imagine, but by Congress. We're not allowed to uh, voice an opinion. So, uh, no, we have nothing to say about that. And there are plenty of people that deserve the medal that didn't get it. No witnesses, for instance. 
uh, or the Marines broke all their Crayolas. You know, <laughs> they weren't able to write it and document it. And so, uh, no, I, I, I could have written several people up if I had my Crayola. You know, mm-hmm. I could have done it. But it's so easy just to overlook it and say, well, he was just doing his job. Or, or maybe, you know, he was unlucky. You know, um, it, takes an, it takes an effort to want to write somebody up and, um, you know, follow it through. So, no, but the society, Medal of Honor Society that we belong to and the individual recipients have no say in recommending or dis- disapproving any applicant for that award. Is there a Vietnam War movie that gets it right? Or do you eschew watching them? I uh, no, I watch all of them. Uh, I uh, now I I couldn't in the beginning, but we were you know uh, Mel Gibson's movie mm-hmm. uh, is one that brings home you know we were soldiers. I think it was we were young and the book is we were soldiers. Yeah, mm-hmm. and, and young. Yeah, mm-hmm. and I know two. I knew three of the recipients that were featured in that movie. Uh, Joe Marm was on the ground, and mm-hmm. I knew. Uh, Bruce Crandall and and Ed Freeman were the helicopter pilots, and you know the, when you know the people in the movie, it brings a relevance as well as um, realization that um, you know, especially talking to them and say, well, how much of that was real and how much of it was Hollywood, and you know, I mean, it's uh, they're two of my hero. They're all three of them are my heroes, you know, for the actions that they did. But again, I don't single any of them out because they're all my heroes. And uh, can we talk about? Yes, uh, please do. Per- well, got, uh, I was going to ask you one more time about your visit to Indianapolis, and then yeah. we we ask the same five questions of all of our guests. Oh, well, the the purpose of my visit here today is to help the American Legion Post Five Hundred develop a a new post, and and hopefully we'll be able to change the entire attitude and appearance of the American Legion to attract the younger veterans so that they would feel welcomed and uh, feel like they're going to get some benefit. Too many times these kids uh, come to a meeting and they're turned off with the drinking and the smoking Mm and uh, storytelling and and, and especially when they don't have any stories and they haven't been around long enough to make make them up like the rest of the veterans have. (laughs) So you know, it's just it's adverse uh, environment. So we're trying to change all that and and better put it into place a better education uh, theme for the Legion itself. You know, I think everybody, including uh, suicide victims, uh, need a sense of purpose. There wouldn't be suicide if we had a sense of purpose for that person. The American Legion has done tremendously great things for our veterans, but they're not doing it what they what they used to do. There's you know, it's pretty well all done, maybe. I, and I don't know that that's a true statement because we're always trying to improve the, the relationships and the quality of life. But the American Legion needs a facelift, and, and uh, we're here to do that. And we're here to um, encourage recruit recruiting of the new veterans. We have uh, my particular foundations, the triumphantspiritfoundation.org, They'll be able to go there. Your listeners can uh, look up what we're doing. Um, this uh, building a new facility here uh, across from the uh, racetrack, uh, we have plenty of opportunity for people to get involved and show their support. And we want them to come down and join the, the American Legion. That's what we're about. Come down. Uh, you know, it's not going to benefit me. I live in Kansas City. Mm-hmm. But it will benefit the veteran. And hopefully maybe prevent a little suicide thoughts if they can get back uh, around the, the camaraderie and the brotherhood that they had while they were on active duty. You know, we have very little suicide on active duty. It's usually when they come home and they're lost. They don't have the camaraderie. They don't have the relationships and the brotherhood and people to talk to and self-confidence. And so we're trying to instill all that. And, and we're trying to raise money now to build that relationship you know, we've got a lot of a lot of ways for people to come and get involved. You know, we're even selling bricks. You know, for the mm-hmm. uh, to help build the the new facility. Kissabrick.com sounds kind of crazy, but it's it's meant to uh, recognize uh, heroes 
um, that uh, that served our great country and kiss a brick can be a you know a, a household name on honoring your family member by being part of a growing new trend in the American Legion. I need to buy some in three generations, four generations of my family. There are 17 veterans, so I'll be buying some bricks. Outstanding. And, and 100% of the money goes to support uh, Post 500 and its endeavors. And, and we're using Post 500 as kind of the uh, jump-off uh, pilot project. And uh, maybe national will look at that and we'll be able to uh, someday take it nationwide, you know, with character development and, and youth education. We want to get back to patriotism. We, we're lacking a lot in this country. And patriotism, in my opinion, is one of the largest things that we can educate people and, and at least attempt to, you know, and take responsibility for your actions and, you know, just be uh, – uh, as I stated earlier, um, we, we put the blame on the parents because they failed to teach the importance of Americanism. And that's what we're all about is teaching Americanism and patriotism. We have reached the point in the Leaders and Legends podcast where we ask the same five questions. This is very quick and very easy. Uh, all our guests, Doc Ballard, are you ready? I'm ready. Do you need a Marine here to help you with these answers? No, I don't need any Marines today. <laughs> what was your first job? In my life, mm -hmm. I worked at a skating rink. I, I learned how to roller skate, and, um, you know, I worked uh, as a skater, you know, roller skating at, at different parties and helping the kids. What was your first concert? It would have been a military band that uh, that came through town, and uh, my parents took me to a military uh, concert. And, uh, you know, that also got me excited with uh, joining the military. You never saw Strawberry Alarm Clock or the Guess Who? Oh, you said my first, though. Mm -hmm. Like a big kind of like rock concert or something other than the band. I don't, Your answer's fine. I was pushing a bit. Sound, it doesn't sound fine. You're trying to push me in a different direction. Well, you don't have any Marines here to help you. <laughs> I'm not a big rock star. I'd rather throw them than listen to them. Question number three. If you could suggest any book for someone to read, which book would you choose? Mm, if uh, The first one would be the Bible. Uh, I think the second one would be uh, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Question four, if you could witness any event in history, be there in person as it happens, which event would you choose? That's difficult. Um, I've lived too long, a lot of events. Uh, I think I would like to be uh, on the USS Missouri when the Japanese surrendered. September of 45. I thought you may choose being back in the United States on May 16th, 1968, so you could celebrate your daughter's birthday with her. I would have liked to. That was not an event that I could support. Witness blowing out the cake. A last question. If you could have dinner with anyone living today, living today, two hours off the record to talk about anything you want, whom would you choose? President Trump. You have been listening to the Leaders and Legends podcast. It's presented by Veteran Strategies, an Indiana-based public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Garmond Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and NFP, a national insurance broker with strong local content. As always, all our podcast interviews are dedicated to the legacy and generosity of P.E. McAllister, a veteran of World War II. Our guest today has been Doc Ballard. He received three Purple Hearts, and also the Medal of Honor for saving the lives of his fellow Marines and human beings. You are very generous with your memories and your time today. Good luck on your mission, the latest mission for you. Please let me know how I may be helpful, and thank you. Bye, Bricks. Thank you very much for listening to Leaders and Legends, brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated. If you want to contact us about this program or our menu of public relations services, please send us an email at robert at veteranstrategies.com. That's robert at veteranstrategies.com.
This podcast was produced and edited by Chris Spangle and Leaders and Legends, LLC. If you're interested in starting a podcast or taking yours to the next level, please contact us at leadersandlegends.net.